the CIS critical security controls provide a prioritized path to improve an enterprise's cybersecurity posture. Version 8 includes some exciting updates to keep up with the ever-changing cyber ecosystem. The CIS controls are now task-focused and combined by activities rather than by who manages the devices, decreasing the number of CIS controls from 20 to 18. The 18 controls contain 153 safeguards, which you formerly knew as subcontrols. Safeguards are still prioritized into implementation groups, or IGs, with IG1 defining essential cyber hygiene. The updated CIS controls point to existing standards and recommendations, along with V8, supporting information, products, and services are updated and available to help you with implementation. Learn more about CIS Controls version 8 by visiting org slash controls. Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Boozbot, how's it going, man? Hello, user. I've been reprogrammed to use ChatGPT in my conversation. Oh, okay. So now I'm user. Okay. So tell me why ChatGPT. By leveraging language models like GPT, Short for Generative Pre-Training Transformer, I can easily handle simple queries and help users find the information they need, freeing up human resources. I can also generate personalized conversation and enhance bar patron experiences while interacting in a natural way. However, it is important to consider the limitations and potential ethical implications of using these technologies and to ensure that they are used responsibly and with appropriate safeguards in place. Okay, not bad, but you're no Hemingway. Ironically, Death in the Afternoon is a cocktail created by Ernest Hemingway, an American writer known for his adventurous and bohemian lifestyle. The cocktail is made with absinthe and champagne, and it is said to have been one of Hemingway's favorites. To make a Death in the Afternoon cocktail, you will need 1.5 ounces of absinthe, 4 ounces of champagne. Pour the absinthe into a champagne flute or a tall glass, then top it off with champagne. Stir gently, and serve chilled. The drink gets its name from Hemingway's 1932 nonfiction book, Death in the Afternoon, which is a meditation on the spectacle and tradition of bullfighting in Spain. It is unclear whether Hemingway actually invented the cocktail or if he simply popularized it but it has become associated with him and his love of absinthe. Absinthe is a strong, anise-flavored liquor that was once banned in many countries due to its alleged psychoactive properties. See, now you're talking. It's critical that you only drink one, otherwise. Oh shit! Medic! See you next. Round.
is head of content at GRC World Forums. He is a certified information privacy professional and a respected voice on data security, privacy, and business practices. He built his reputation writing in-depth reports on legislative developments, compliance guidelines for organizations, and news stories about the latest industry trends. Robert, welcome to Barcode, man. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And also here with me, again, is the one and only Rohan Light. Ooh. G'day, g'day. Um, so a lot has happened within the data governance realm within these past, I'd say, two, two to three months. Um, where do we start? Well, it's a good question, Chris. I would start uh, a while ago, perhaps even as far back as 2013, to frame some of the issues we're dealing with in Europe and between Europe and the US when it comes to data protection and privacy. The reason I say 2013 is because that's when the Snowden leaks came out. So you'll know about that, of course, Edward Snowden, CIA contractor who leaked a load of information about how the NSA uh, was spying on private uh, communications. And that was really the first time we had a glimpse of how the system in the U.S. worked for data interception. Uh, before that, there was a lot of speculation and conspiracy. And Snowden kind of gave us an idea of how the law worked in practice. So this is still having repercussions today, particularly in relations between the EU and less so now the UK and the US. And this is what's occupying a lot of people's time over here in this sector uh, in Europe and in the US as well. So the reason it's so important is because it revealed this kind of fundamental conflict between the US law and the EU law. Uh, so the NSA had these two surveillance programs you might know, Upstream and PRISM, uh, which is uh, two different programs for intercepting data. And uh, the, the, the law in the US essentially conflicts with the fundamental rights in the EU. And so the, the problem from an EU perspective is that personal data traveling to the US is being intercepted by US authorities. And the, the perception is that the US is violating Europeans' uh, human rights in that way. So this is a big dispute. It's left a lot of companies in limbo. And essentially, there's been a lot of law-breaking going on just because the law is so broken. And uh, all the US companies, Google, Facebook, uh, you know, all the meta companies, everyone, you know, Salesforce, uh, every tech company you can think of really has had been in this kind of legal limbo um, for, for nearly a decade now as the EU and the US try and sort this out politically. And compliance people, people working in privacy and data protection, have been kind of left to deal with this with no real fundamental legal answers. What do you think needs to happen in order to, to make progress here? So what the EU and the US keep doing is, uh, well, fundamentally, the EU doesn't allow 
European companies to export people's data, as they put it, to countries that don't have a strong human rights regime. And so you might think of countries like China or, or Russia, but also because of the EU's very high standards, the US falls into this category too, because of certain problems with the US legal system from a European perspective. And of course, that has huge implications because the US companies run the internet. You know, the, Facebook and Google, it's, it's, it's borderline impossible to avoid interacting with these US companies if you want to do business or go about your daily life these days. And so the EU and the US have been trying to come to these agreements whereby companies can sign up to these particular schemes, you know, um, promising to treat Europeans' data uh, better uh, than they would otherwise. But they keep getting knocked down in court. So we're on our third version of this framework now. Just released today, actually, was a draft new decision by the European Commission. And uh, it keeps being taken to court by one guy called Max Schrems, who uh, is on a kind of campaign against this um, conflict in, in law. And they, it keeps getting knocked down, and then they try again. And now they're on their third attempt, so we're going to see how long that one lasts. But yeah, there's a fundamental conflict, and it's all about human rights from the European perspective and the right not to be spied on by the NSA and the CIA effectively. As for what might fix it in the long term, I think it would require some sort of change to US law, uh, which doesn't seem very likely because the US is so keen on its uh, intelligence gathering operations and says, you know, it might be right that it needs to do this to maintain its own security. Uh, it's a good question whether or not the US can reconfigure parts of itself in order to um, evolve with the world. It is. And it's. some people say there's an element of hypocrisy in Europe because many countries within the EU do their own intelligence gathering. You know, they do their own surveillance and yep. they say they have a right to to intercept communications as well. France, the UK, when it was part of the EU, were always pushing for more power to retain people's data, to, to intercept communications. And the EU doesn't tend to look inwards as much as it looks outwards. And of course, it's created this, like I say, this impossible situation where the law is being broken billions of times a day just by people using companies like Google and, and Facebook and, you know, not just, just them, any kind of uh, electronic communications service pr providers uh, from the US. There, there's, a, there's a fundamental problem there. Um, so it's, it's created quite uh, an impracticality uh, as well for, for many people that have to deal with this stuff uh, for their jobs. Hey, um, just for a change of tack, uh, can we jump to the Irish EDPB ruling with Meta? For sure. I mean, Meta are in huge trouble over here. And um, they've said a few times that the 
may need to discontinue their European operations because of the, you know, the, the problems that they have complying with the law. A lot of people say that's a bluff. You know, they would, they would never pull out of Europe. And of course they, they wouldn't if they could avoid it. But I have some sympathy with the argument actually, because they can't really bring themselves into compliance with European law, given their business models. So they've got all these companies now, WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, of course, and each of these companies is undergoing an investigation or more for breaking various privacy rules. So uh, Instagram, for example, had an issue. I mean, this one is probably the least sympathetic. Um, they allowed children to convert their accounts into business accounts. And part of that process required those children to publish their data, their phone number and email address on the open web. Uh, so that obviously is a big no-no as far as um, European data protection law is concerned. So they're in hot water over that one. Uh, Facebook itself, well, they did what has been described as a consent bypass. So the idea is that you, of course, you sign up for Facebook, you need to um, be served personalized ads. And this is, in, in Europe, you're supposed to have a choice about this, which is part of the reason we have these cookie banners that everyone hates so much. Um, you're supposed to be able to say no to that. But Facebook, we're not allowing people to say no. So that's, a, that's another problem that, that Ireland and the European Data Protection Board are dealing with. And then there's WhatsApp, who I'm sure you remember, there was a big controversy earlier in the year about wanting to share more data with uh, Facebook, the parent company. And so they're also facing, you know, hundred of hundred millions of euros in, in fines for, for all of these issues. Um, and there's a whole data transfer thing that I was talking about there that goes back to Snowden. It's the case against Meta is that they are kind of illegally exporting people's data into the US. Of course, they can't really help doing that because they're an American company, but the case has been brought against them. So they're, they're the kind of test case for this. Mm. Yes. Uh, Meta is a supranational um, entity that extends across borders and envelops entire countries in that sense. Um, you can see this as a... Um, a large-scale tightening of rules. Uh, this is why entities like Meta are encouraging, uh, are encountering so many problems, is simply because exposing things that are pretty unsavoury in some cases, giving us a sense of what the business model actually is. Yeah, so the business model depends on a lot of people's private information being processed in quite an intrusive way. Um, the, the thing with Facebook is you kind of know what you're signing up for in a way. There are other companies like um, you may have heard of Clearview AI who are doing slightly more nefarious uh, activities. Uh, this is a company that 
has created this kind of biometric database of people from around the world. And uh, I think they've got something like 6 billion images of people's faces. This is a, an American company also in trouble in various European states um, facing these these large fines across Europe. And so they scraped the web for facial images. They, I'm sure we'll all be on there. I know I am because I asked them. And they create a kind of biometric identifier for each uh, person that they, they create a record for. And they sell access to that database to police services so they can, they can, um, so they can find people they want to find. And, uh, this is, uh, just another example really of how much of our personal data is subject to these sort of, um, unnerving and arguably nefarious activities and you know, in Europe, this is regulators are struggling to to keep on top of this stuff. Yeah, the case against Clearview can be tracked by the number of police agencies that adopt it, and then two months later, suddenly unadopt it once they realise they're breaking multiple rules. It's a fascinating thing to watch happen um, as a, every society deals with the extension of facial recognition technology. Yeah, so they, uh, there's a UK police force that appeared to have tried them out at one point and uh, very quickly decided against it. This is an interesting pattern, as you say, uh, Rowan. Um, Swedish police, I think, also tried it. Uh, the Mounties in Canada, too, uh, used it. And it keeps being declared illegal in all these countries. But uh, not so much in the US because, of course, it doesn't have the strong sort of uh, privacy law that, that we have in, in other places. There was a private case against Clearview uh, in Illinois. So the US has a good system for these private legal claims, but um, less, less regulation than you see in, in, in other parts of the world. Yeah, so to my knowledge, I know they've been fined at least once to no avail. Um, do you feel like we're going to continue to see this stay unresolved? It's so hard to see how it resolves itself. Um, there's some suggestion, you know, I don't think this is viable. Some people are saying, you know, they should... Some European countries should try to extradite the CEO and uh, deal with it that way. Because the thing is that they can't, the business model is such that they can't discriminate against, they can't, they can't say we're only going to collect facial images of Americans. It's got to be everyone because they don't know where these images are coming from. So unless there's some American law, I mean, they're based in New York and as a state, it, it's not the weakest in terms of privacy regulation, but it's there's nothing stopping them from doing it, so it's legal there. And this is just another example of how the internet, this interconnected nature of the internet, you know, the borders aren't, they don't mean much anymore. 
Um, so you, you, you struggle unless the US adopts some sort of, uh, federal privacy law, which is not completely inconceivable. There's one on the books at the moment that a lot of people are saying might happen. But unless something like that takes place, then it's hard to see how they can be stopped, really. Also, they keep getting these fines in Europe. I mean, they're 20 million in Italy. Uh, France, I think, is 20 million euros as well. UK is seven and a half million pounds. I don't see how these regulators are going to actually get this money because why would they pay, you know? Yeah, that was my next question, was enforceability of fines. Mm. Mm. It's a tricky one. Um, I mean, they're ruled out of a lot of these markets anyway. They have tried to go into these European markets, but every time they do, someone makes a complaint, and the, the business model is clearly not compatible with European law. So regulators do a big investigation. It takes a year or more, and then they issue a fine. And then clearly, normally appeals, but there's no real reason for them to pay because they say, well, those laws don't apply to us. That's going to be tested in the UK soon because they're taking it to court. Um, And legally, they, they might be right, I guess. They you know, it's, it's a real test of that idea that Europe can somehow control new, non-European companies operating within within Europe. Um, if you want to do business there, it's quite easy to to penalise companies. But if you're not interested, then how much can they really do? It's uh, it's it's a difficult question. Yeah. Wow. I was just actually thinking um, of. Uh, another large tech company that uh, is having interesting conversations with the EU at the moment, and that, of course, is Twitter, the, um, the 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 communication platform of choice. That suddenly, um, with a change of governance at the top, we're actually able to see how um, the downstream does change. It's a fascinating topic right now. It is, yeah, and I I love Twitter personally. You know, I waste a lot of time on there, and uh, it's uh, it's my favorite of the kind of platforms. And it's particularly, I mean, it's it's a bit like watching a slow motion car crash at the moment, but it's very compelling um, seeing what's going on. And I think people in my community, anyway, the data protection people. I've kind of forgotten that Twitter's never been very good at that stuff. So people are saying, you know, Europe's going to shut it down. The GDPR is going to put it out of business. But Twitter's had problems like this before. They have had a GDPR fine. It was only half a million euros or so. Um, other regulators wanted it to be much higher, but the Irish uh, regulator where they're based is quite, is, known to be quite lenient. Um, and there were these revelations, of course, a few months ago from the, um, the ex head of security there. Um, he, he came out, you know, whistleblows, Peter's, Peter Zacco or Mudge 
as he was known, who came out with some pretty shocking stuff about what had been going on uh, in Twitter for many years. Um, they only allegedly only managed around 20% of their internal data sets. Uh, he said there was ignorance and misuse about what data was where. He alleged that they had serious vulnerabilities at around half of their servers and uh, failing to manage employee devices, uh, the, the serious problems with access control, I think, over accounts. Um, so I think people have kind of, people were very anti Twitter from the compliance point of view for a long time. And I think they, now Musk has taken over and he's behaving, uh, objectionably in so many other ways. <laughs> people are forgetting about the problems that Twitter's always had in, in, in this sense. It's just another company really built on processing people's data and trying to sell them stuff. You know, you, you are the, product as they say um, yeah. on Twitter just like with Facebook the, the Twitter authentication problem runs deep onto that platform the um, just uh, I saw an article I think this morning uh, referencing insider intelligence Jasmine Enberg estimating 32 million users exiting Twisker over the coming two year period um, what what are your thoughts? I think around the scale of the exit, whether it happens or not, even people leaving Twitter. You mean? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people have been telling me to move to Mastodon, uh, which is another social network, um, and I'm on it. But there's something about Twitter that's just so much more kind of fun and, and lively, you know. And you, it's, it's a bit like you occasionally see celebrities posting stuff and I don't, you know, care very much about that side of things. But it's kind of nice to have them around in a way. I would try it out Mastodon and uh, it's very dry, lots of academics, lots of tech people, which is kind of my comfort zone, but I, so I like to see stuff out from outside of that as well. And your source of information is limited too, right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. The UX is different. You're, yeah. you're looking at a t TV Mastodon is um, curating um, conversations. That's a different end of the spectrum, I think, um, which is one reason why, you know, a clearly a, a, a curated, a well curated conversational platform. Um, can work, should work, does work, is working. It's the extent to which we can keep the obnoxious drunks out of the bar. Yeah, these algorithmic content systems get a bad name, but uh, I kind of <laughs> like it, to be honest, you know, having stuff pushed on me. Uh, and I think sometimes people might overstate the degree to which that's sinister or nefarious exercise. Um, Mastodon is kind of decentralized, as you, as you might know. So it's, it's difficult to find stuff unless you're looking for it. And it's, it kind of keeps you in your bubble a bit. I'm quite comfortable in my Twitter bubble, though, to be fair. I've never experienced or, or witnessed a lot of the more disgusting uh, tweets, um, unless I look for them. 
uh, you know, the more abusive and, and horrible stuff. You do, you do stumble across it sometimes, but if you know your community there, I know the information security, um, community seems quite nice as well as data protection on, on privacy on my side. Uh, so I built a kind of little bubble of people that I really like there. It would be a shame if the whole thing fell apart. I don't think it, I don't know about you two. I think Twitter was probably hobble on for a few years. Uh, I don't think it's going to disappear anytime soon. I agree with that. And I think it comes down to the individual as well. Like you said, I mean, us as security practitioners, we, we know what lane to stay in. Um, but it's hard for me to believe that when you look at Mastodon or uh, an alternative that the, the bullshit won't follow. Yeah. I think that the bullshit will follow. And the thing that people forget about Twitter is for all its issues with trolls and whatnot, they've got a lot of money to spend on content moderation. Whereas Mastodon, it's all individual people running their own individual servers. So they can make their own choices about who gets banned, who gets suspended and so on. And that can lead to some quite unhealthy outcomes as well. Um, I'm mm. in the pre social media days, uh, on forums or whatever. I remember some pretty bad situations and toxic communities, uh, in, on those platforms too. And of course we always have LinkedIn, which I know some great people on LinkedIn, but, um, yeah. it's just, it's, it's quite corporate. Twitter's just feels more kind of cool yeah. <laughs> less formal the infosec community on twitter is is a different regime than the infosec community on on linkedin i like both and i've built a good community on both um and a run from from linkedin for example mm -hmm. but um i kind of feel like i've got my work clothes on at linkedin more so than with with twitter uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. One interesting thing is I don't see anyone talking about going back to Facebook when they're talking about leaving Twitter. I mean, it just hasn't entered the realm of possibility at all. Um, so I wonder if it's done for as a social network. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say the, the bulk of their business now sits in advertising control. Um, I think Meta... Meta Zuck face Insta what now is is uh, some sort of other beast that extends into other uh, complementary areas, and I think we'll we'll see them around for a while. But the um, in terms of the um, the the previous darling of um, compliance villainy, um, Zuckerberg has. Uh, fallen to the wayside a bit. We have, you know, the compliance people are looking now at the 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 Clearview business models, the ones that can exploit in plain sight, as it were. Um, it's an interesting situation. Yeah, no matter what social media platform you use, it's hard to avoid seeing the trending topic of 
OpenAI and technology like Dolly or ChatGPT. Evil. Um, Sorry. What'd you say, evil? No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, you know, I'd love to get get your thoughts on that, Robert, in terms of the technology itself, um, the the ethical aspect, and the potential threat that it brings to the people that are using it as it continues to go more mainstream. And I think we can all agree that that it's going more mainstream. I've been playing with. I'd, I'd, I'd also like to come back to Ryan on on his on his opinion on on this one because I know he's uh, big in the world of AI and also said that ChatGPT was was evil. Uh, you know, I tried it out and I have been impressed. It's infuriating. Uh, in many ways, chat GPT. I know it's kind of just a new interface really for OpenAI's existing large language model. Um, but I found it, you know, just on a personal level, this is not from a professional point of view. I found it surprisingly limited in some areas and extremely impressive in others. It's very belligerent and stubborn about certain things when it gets something wrong and it doesn't understand why it's wrong uh it, it it's not very it's it's not very self-aware i know we shouldn't expect that from an ai but it seems to be trained to sound correct about everything hmm. that's interesting eh how it um it has a, a stubbornness to it in terms of how it defends its lack of knowledge in the areas that it knows it doesn't know. Yeah. Um, the, the, of course, it's been fed on people's brains in the forms of um, words, right? Um, the thing is, I, I, yeah, you're right, I don't like it. And the reason I don't like it is because now um, ground truth can be so much more easily falsified. So now... Uh, compliance professionals when we are trying to get down to the ground truth of something uh, it's going to get a lot harder because the eloquence level is going to go up much much higher and this is going to impact careers in funny ways I think simply because we go those were great words can you please elaborate <laughs> and people stumble over and um, revealed for faking it before they made it. Yeah, it's it it it. So I'm sure you're familiar with the paperclip maximizer, this thought experiment about an AI trained to create paperclips, and it's so. I mean, it's the wrong word to use, but it's so determined to keep making paperclips that it creates paperclips out of all the material it can find and ends up destroying the human race in its quest to make paperclips. And I'm thinking of ChatGPT, its kind of paperclips is just sounding like it knows what it's talking about. It, it kind of will steer the dialogue you're having with it towards any position that makes it sound competent. And if we, right now it's kind of a, a gimmick to some extent. It can do some pretty cool stuff. You know, I ask it to write me some code and that kind of thing. It, it does that very well. It writes 
possible blog posts. Um, Do you think Liz Truss was using it uh, as an idea generator? Um, really? Is this a theory that's going around or your own? I, that was a pure slanderous joke uh, on my part. Ignore it immediately. Ignore it. Ignore it. It would actually, that is a great use for it, I think, speech writing, because the kind of stuff it comes out with is quite bland. And, you know, it sounds okay to most people's ears, I guess. But I think you're right, as it becomes more integral to society, those things are going to have increasingly uh, dramatic consequences. And the, the idea that it is another water muddying sort of barrier to getting to ground truth, as, as you say, becomes more and more important as we use AI in so many different fields. And as for the jobs, I mean, I thought, like many people, long-distance lorry drivers, for example, truck drivers, would be the first to lose their jobs to AI. Now, that seems like a long way off. And instead, you've got service and knowledge workers that should be more worried, um, which is not how I expected it to go. Yeah, the case recently of the deceased uh, South Korean artist being uh, their work being extended in a highly plagiaristic manner um, by grieving fans, but also um, speculators, um, greatly changing the bases of actual value. Um, that's an example of what these things, I think, can do to a market. Um, yeah. It's interesting times. Um, but actually, there's a, there's a really critical question which we haven't covered. Um, and I need to know uh, who was actually the best character on Andor? <laughs> well, I was a big fan of the show. I really like uh, the main guy, Andor himself. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was uh, the streets ahead of other Star Wars IP released recently. Personally, now, what about you? Oh, un unreal! It was um, had to be straight away the um, the uh, ISB, wasn't it? The 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 main woman uh, who's figured out the plot um, and who's working through a series of really intense psychological episodes, which we we are not privy to, but quite clearly the character is you know motoring through outcomes very unpredictable um thoroughly enjoyed it and the writing the characterization and the depth of it awesome yeah i thought it was phenomenal great show and uh i really liked uh andy circus's character as well in the prison the prison break whole scenario that was that was a great one and uh well coming back to ai I must say, I can't help but be excited by what's going on in the space. I don't know if you, you seem to be, uh, I think I've become less cynical about it the more I've had firsthand experience of it, to be honest. And there's a lot going on in terms of the law around it, particularly in Europe. Um, there's going to be a lot of changes coming up in, when the AI regulation hits. Um, but 
I found myself being quite seduced by it uh, since playing around with these tools. I don't know if you think that's very naive of me. Oh, no. Uh, I'm an empiricist, um, but I'm also a complainer, you know, and I'm never short of an opinion. Uh, it's just that uh, I happen to have been watching this um, sector for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my main viewpoint is actually young people um, and giving young people chances of uh, non-digital and digital life experiences before they get too old. Um, I'd say that'd be my, my biggest driver. But professionally, um, there's no way that we, we have to get involved with these devices in order to be able to identify the control surface. And until we can, uh, identify the control surface, we can't be sure of our risk actions. Um, that's why the ground truth, any threats to the ability to empirically identify ground truth are significant. And do you think it's possible to have that? Yes. Yes, because um, anything that has, in, for something to be important, it must have an effect that is observable. Um, otherwise, there's nothing to differentiate it between two brains in a jar having an amazing conversation. They just don't know it. Um, there must be a real world impact. Uh, just because we can't observe it just means we're looking in the wrong place. So hence, we just keep looking. And it doesn't take long to figure out the costs of, for instance, content moderation and how the, that industry has been fractionalized out into um, Africa, for instance, where the, there is an abundance of labor that can be cheaply exploited. I mean, you can't deny that the technology is phenomenal. If the governance is there, what is an optimal use case that, that you envision? Well, we just treat these things the same way we treat cars. Um, we wouldn't put up with mass casualties in car testing. So let's not put up with really bad rights outcomes in uh, data system delivery sequences, which can last for years. It can take years to get products out there during which time lean manufacturing techniques tell us that yes we can make multiple interventions and so then therefore by the time your car arrives um, you have an expectation of uh, high reliability with intolerance levels and those tolerance levels are buffered for your customer experience and so it's the same thing as any data product and an ai is just a data product it's a configuration and it's a rapidly changing configuration but we still we still have the ability to turn the switch off that at the moment the ai can't defeat that action so robert you just attended risk 22 in london um you tell me about that experience yeah i was uh i was chairing the data protection and privacy theater so yeah it was great and we had a lot of discussions about a lot of kind of dorky stuff that I found highly interesting, but to an outsider might have seemed a bit dry. Uh, so mostly compliance related stuff. Uh, some pretty, the data protection is one of those areas where there's some people that are extremely famous within this field 
that no one outside of it has heard of. Uh, so it's, it's just one of those communities that's, uh, is quite, quite small and quite close. Uh, so we had some fairly well-known speakers. Max Schrems, who I mentioned earlier, was one of them. Uh, I've interviewed him a few times now. And uh, I'm kind of an outsider in this field because although I know a lot about it and I'm fairly well-respected on it and I have to keep on top of everything, I've never actually done a day's work in this industry. I never practiced it. Um, so I spent a lot of time talking to people at events like that. And I, I know I can hold my own in a conversation with academics, you know, lawyers or, or practitioners, tech people to a lesser extent, perhaps. But I don't actually do the work. So it's interesting to meet people who do, hear about their frustrations and their day-to-day graft. Uh, whether it's insecurity or, or, or data protection, or we had stuff on financial crime there as well, uh, environmental social governance. And, uh, it was, it was a really interesting event. Yeah. Nice. There'll be more next year. So we, we're hitting, uh, Amsterdam, Dubai, London again for risk throughout the year. It should be good. And you're based in the UK, correct? That's right. Since this is barcode, what's the best bar you've ever been to? And is it in the UK? Man, I like uh, an old-fashioned English pub quite a lot. They're dying out here in the UK, but you can still find them. And so I used to always go to a place called The Vine, which was very cozy, uh, warm beer which is an aberration to most people outside the UK and a fireplace and occasionally a folk band playing a beer garden for the summer, very small slither of summer we sometimes get in this country. And the vine, I spent lots of years there, some of them underage (laughs) drinking with friends. And uh, a lot of my friends have moved away from the town where I grew up now. So I haven't been there for a while, but that was the first one that came to my head, the vine in Tarring. So I just heard last call here. You have time for one more? Sure. If you decided to open a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be? And what would your signature drink be called? Hmm. Well, this is a very much an in-joke for European data protection compliance people. I'm going to call it the DPIL. <laughs> um, nice. That abbreviation stands for Data Protection Impact Assessments. And that's, that's probably the dorkiest joke I've ever made. As for a drink, well, I like an old-fashioned I can't think of a way to turn that into a privacy pun, though. So I'm afraid I'm just going to have to leave you with that just because I like old fashions. Uh, Yeah, well, you you did it well at DPIL. That's great. Good. Um, That's great. Someone has to sponsor that for the next um, big uh, GRC uh, PrivSec conference. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, good call. So Robert, you mentioned you're on Twitter quite often. You're also on LinkedIn. Um, 
you know, where can our listeners that are, that are hearing this connect with you online? Yeah, well, at Twitter, Robert J. Bateman, LinkedIn, just search for Robert Bateman. It's a uh, protection of data is the URL, but I didn't think people care about that when it comes to LinkedIn. And uh, GRC World Forums, I write a lot and put up on that site. So grcwf.com. Uh, I haven't had time to do as much as I'd like recently, but uh, people follow my writing. I get into the minutiae of data protection law and developments. So check out the website. We've got a lot of good events coming up um, in January. We've got a couple, and I'll be hosting moderating panels, interviewing people. So yeah, connect with me. As I say, uh, Twitter's my favorite. So follow me there and I'll follow back. Cool, man. Well, this has been great. Thanks. I really appreciate the knowledge and take care. Be safe. Good to meet you both. And uh, yeah, talk again. Cheers. See ya. As you know, Barcode is where security and IT professionals hang out after a long day. So get your message front and center to our fans by sponsoring an episode. Learn more at the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.